Hello, I'm Vivian Parry, Head of Public Engagement at Genomics England. It's my pleasure today to be guest hosting today's episode of The G Word. We're trying to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone, and that involves accelerating genomic research and also working with the NHS to bring genomics into the heart of healthcare. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, anger. There's a lot of information out there, but a lot of myths too, and it's not at all accessible to non-experts. So we want to talk more about this word, the G word, genomics. So welcome to the G word. Now, Genomics England acts as guardian of the National Genomic Research Library, which contains data generously donated by participants with rare disease and cancer. The NGRL is one of the globe's most important data sets. For instance, it contains over 1,500 sarcoma sequences, the largest number in any data set. Sarcoma is a cancer which is difficult to diagnose and difficult to treat, and its prognosis has hardly changed over the last 40 years. To help explore what whole genome sequencing might mean for sarcoma patients, we're bringing you two podcasts in association with Sarcoma UK. In this one, we'll be talking to Professor Adrian Flanagan, acknowledged as the most distinguished expert in this field in Europe. And in the next, we'll be talking to Zoe Conway, whose husband's early death from sarcoma was working in Downing Street for the Prime Minister, prompted her to start a sarcoma fundraising drive. So let's turn to Professor Flanagan. She's consultant pathologist at the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital and lead scientist at the Cell and Genetics of Sarcoma team at UCL Cancer Institute. And significantly for us, she heads the Sarcoma GSIP. A GSIP is a kind of huddle of experts which come together to look at particular conditions, in this case, sarcoma. Welcome, Adrian. Thank you, Vivian. Let's start by explaining sarcoma, because I suspect some people will have heard of it, but most people won't know much about it. Absolutely. And it's great that people haven't heard about it because it's not a disease that you want to, for most people to encounter. And people won't have heard about it because it represents less than 2% of all cancers. So, for instance, to put that into perspective, there are probably about 65 new diagnoses of breast cancer a year. For sarcoma, there's a diagnosis of about, about 2,500 cases per annum. But of those 2,500, some of those, there are 100 different subtypes of sarcoma. And some of those sarcomas, such as epithelioid sarcoma or clear cell sarcoma, alveolar soft part sarcoma, there may be less, probably less than five or 10 cases per annum diagnosed each year in the United Kingdom. So you can see that to really gain information and insight into these particularly rare tumors, one has to collect them for many, many years to be able to gather the numbers and also to follow those individual patients to see how they respond to therapies and to see their clinical outcomes. So it's almost as if sarcoma is more like the rare diseases that we're so familiar with at Genomics England. Absolutely. And the rare diseases, I am 
mainly we're talking, many of those are running families, those rare diseases. And also in sarcoma, particularly in younger people, um, one should investigate whether these tumors actually are running in, in families, because that will help people to make decisions. And um, it also affects um, clinical management of those individual patients. So they're difficult to distinguish between one and the other, but also some of them are quite difficult to diagnose from benign conditions too, aren't they? I mean, making a diagnosis of sarcoma is challenging because actually if there's only two and a half thousand cases a year and there are a couple of hundred departments of pathology around the United Kingdom, therefore individuals may only see a couple of these tumours a year. So for that reason, the NHS was set up so that there were subspecialised units of sarcoma, and particularly for bone tumours, so that individuals have the opportunity of seeing a significant number and learning and developing their skills. But lumps and bumps can occur anywhere and therefore any pathologist can see some of these tumours and they have to work out what they are. And actually sarcomas can look like a lymphoma. They can look like a lung cancer. They can look like a testicular cancer. So if you're a general pathologist, the first thing that you think about is not sarcoma, it will be a lung cancer or some of these other cancers. And so making that correct diagnosis is absolutely essential. And to make it rapidly and to move that diagnosis onto a specialist center is what's really required so that patients can get on that pathway and get the right treatment quickly. Um, and because quick treatment, rapid treatment is the best for patient outcome. What age do people get sarcomas? Well, sarcomas can occur at any age. We see children who are born only a few months old, and we see them in individuals who are in their 90s. And um, there are different types of tumors, the tumor types developing at the different ages. And so osteosarcoma, many of these individuals present between the ages of 20, sorry, 15 and 30. You rarely see them under the age of four, but you do see some sarcomas developing under the, when the people are born. So for instance, chordoma, we've seen patients who are actually born with this disease, but we also see patients presenting with them when they're 90 years of age. So that's also challenging because you can't say, well, this tumor is likely to occur in a particular age group. So again, adding to the complexity and the challenge of making these diagnoses. So what I'm getting here is the sense of a really diverse and actually rather mysterious cancer. And what about treatment? So treatment is varied depending on the actual type of tumor. So you mentioned before the treatment is, um, you want to distinguish these tumors from benign and malignant. And some tumors, you really are challenged and you really, I make a great effort to decide, is this really malignant? Should this patient receive chemotherapy? Or can it just, can we watch and wait? Or should it be excised? And we recently, um, saw a, ch a child with a fast growing tumor. Everybody was very, very concerned about it. Um, the pathology looked quite banal, quite benign looking, 
But because of its rapid growth, the oncologists were very concerned about it. Whole genome sequencing was performed on that tumor, showing that the genome changes were really minimal. And we identified a new genetic alteration in that tumor. First of all, we were able to present the patients, the, the family of this very young infant with a diagnosis of benign tumor. The oncologist had been considering chemotherapy. That therefore was placed to one side. There was absolutely no, no need for this. And also we could say to the patients, this, this will stop growing and the patient will be cured. But giving a firm diagnosis with real objective data from the genomics actually is terribly um, convincing to patients. Saying to a patient, well, we're not sure exactly what to call it, but we think we should give some chemotherapy. With the best win in the world, sometimes that's what we have to do. But you can see the, the concern of the patient, of the parents about their, 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 their young child, this uncertainty. So genomic data very often adds that degree of certainty and confidence that whatever treatment you're going to give is the best treatment at the time for that individual. But the prognosis in general for sarcoma patients is not good, is it? Overall, it's not great. Some are worse than others. We have made improvements in the um, but it's been slow. Um, surgery has much improved in terms of the surgical skills of being able to get out the tumors and robotic surgery. But if a tumor has, if the tumor has grown to a certain size, and if it has spread throughout the body, then uh, controlling that disease um, and curing it is not, the, the hope is, is reduced. Um, so the earlier you make that diagnosis, the smaller that tumor is, it's much easier for the surgeon to get it out. So the surgical procedure that the surgeon undertakes is going to be much less morbid. You can remove a lump of tissue, but you don't have to possibly remove and perform an amputation. So having an early diagnosis makes such a difference. Let's talk now about whole genome sequencing for sarcomas because sarcomas are never easy <laughs> and it goes along with uh, their genomes as well because normally uh, in, in cancers you see masses and masses of changes. Lung cancer, just you know, hundreds of thousands and thousands of uh, changes to the genome. But sarcoma is rather different, isn't it, in its changes. Uh, they tend to be of a different type. Tell me a bit more about that and why that's so important. Well, for instance, in lung cancer, we know that not everybody, but many patients with lung cancer develop it because of smoking, right? But in sarcoma, um, we don't know those changes. And the changes that occur in lung cancer are frequently very different from what you see in sarcoma. So in many cases in lung cancer, you have spelling errors. Whereas in sarcoma, the genome seems to be smashed up and put together again. And what we call that is structural rearrangements. So we don't see that many spelling mistakes, but we see massive shattering of these genomes. It's referred to as chromotrypsis. And, and then it's put together again. And many, many genes are corrupted 
and interacting with each other in a completely abnormal way, driving the uncontrolled growth of these tumors. And that's essentially what cancer is. And then, of course, they spread. That's called metastasis. So those changes, those structural shattering of the genome, it's much more difficult to identify a specific target. So we talk about target. The target you mean for a drug? For a drug, thank you, yes. So for instance, with melanoma treatment, we can. there are several targets. We know that there are recurrent alterations, which you see in many, the same genetic alteration in many of these tumors, and you can give specific targets that block and correct that alteration and stop the cells from growing. You but it does, but it's sorry, it, but it does give you, I guess, um, a way of distinguishing one sarcoma from another because presumably these, you know, different mashups are specific to a particular sarcoma type. So some of those corrupted genomes, that shattering, occurs in specific sarcomas like Ewing sarcoma, synovial sarcoma. And some of them, and there you always see the same alteration, which helps you make the diagnosis in synovial sarcoma, Ewing sarcoma. And over the last decade, many, many more have been discovered. And we also saw that, see these in benign tumors helping to make the diagnosis. But in those tumors where you see massive shattering, this chromotrypsis, to date, many of them, um, there's no recurrent repetitive alteration that we know of yet. But there is likely to be something driving this. And this really is why we need to be doing whole genome sequencing. Because then we can look at hundreds and thousands of these cases of the different subtypes that the pathologist looked down the microscope. There must, under the microscope, they look the same. So there must be a genetic alteration that's driving these. And if we have lots and lots of these tumors, we, can, we are much more likely to identify what happens to these tumors to make them behave like this. And once you understand why things are happening, then you can understand the vulnerabilities and maybe develop new drugs to target that vulnerability. Um, so unlike many other cancers, we don't really understand why sarcomas develop. We understand with melanoma, it's very often UV-like, too much sunlight. With smoking, it's um, with um, cancer of the lung, it's smoking. But with sarcoma, we really don't have an idea as to why out of the blue, somebody develops a big fatty tumor or a big muscle tumor. Um, but we are making progress, but if we understand that, and all of that information is hidden in the genomic data. So that's why, why you need the whole genome. It's like having a whole map. If you just see a map of America and Africa and the Arctic, um, that's great, but you don't know how they all join up together. And all the information and the tidal changes in between those continents that gives you information as to how you get from A to B, what route you would want to take. And that's the whole genome. It gives you everything in the map. So you can trace right around the cancer to understand in detail every single change that's occurring. 
And what's great about the genome data, it's there forever. And as the very clever computational bioinformaticians, they learn, they're learning new tools, how to probe and interrogate these genomes all the time. And then, so it's there, but it's a live piece of information that can constantly be investigated over and over again. And then people can model in. If we treat a drug, if we tr treat a tumor with a specific drug, you can map that to the genomic changes and you can actually now model how that might change tumor development. But we now, really need genomes to, to have that information to do the work. I mentioned the, before that these 1,500 uh, genomes of sarcomas are the largest data set of its kind in the world. How excited are researchers to have such a resource to study? Well, I think from a, uh, a research point of view, people can hardly believe their luck in terms of having this fantastic resource. And not only is the genomic data there, but what's also really important is the clinical outcome data. Because if you don't put the genomic findings into how that impacts responses to therapy and survival, it's not of tremendous use to patients. So having that clinical outcome data is absolutely essential for the benefit. So researchers um, find this um, intellectually really exciting because it's new, it's different, and there's lots of questions to be answered. And that's what researchers like. Um, the clinicians like it because they feel they are, have been working for decades now and been really finding it more and more difficult to tell patients that actually there's nothing new or we can't give you a diagnosis. That's changing. We can now tell people much more likely that you have a specific diagnosis. And that's much more easy for patients to have that discussion with patients. I think we are also finding that um, what we're really finding with sarcoma is that this chromotrypsis, this shattering of the genomes is very important in terms of understanding um, why these tumors grow. And that also, um, we're noticing that sometimes, particularly in sarcoma, we have a genome, the genome actually doubles. So you get two genomes in a cancer cell or even four genomes or eight genomes in a cancer cell. That's extraordinary. It, and you think, well, why, how can a cell even um, survive with all of these changes? But it does. But it also, at some stage, that cell will not be compatible with life. It will die. And if we can understand how we can push it over the edge, that really is what the researchers is looking for. Why are these happening? And can we interfere with that process? so that we can bring about and um, kill the cells spontaneously. And of course, the other big um, advances in, in cancer development, in all cancer development over the last um, decade is immune therapy and understanding how the body can be manipulated to fight that its own cancer, right? And so there are now developments um, in understanding the immune response 
And it's very odd. There seems to be a resistance of these sarcomas to the immune response, the patient's own response, much more so than other cancers. But there we are beginning to see that in some cancers, they are susceptible potentially to immune therapy. But each little step adds up. But for this, having the whole human genome data, data set is very informative because we can compare which tumors are likely, what are the differences between these immune responses and then which are more likely to respond and not respond. The genome sequences are helping you decide whether people have sarcoma or something else. Mm -hmm. They're helping you in determining which sarcoma of the many different subtypes uh, is present. And they're helping you with prognosis. And of course, what patients will want to know is about treatment. And my understanding from what you're saying is that we're still in the foothills. We need to understand more before we're able to find targets for these uh, sarcomas, although we may be able to repurpose other drugs for other cancers. Yes, and therefore, you, going back to what I said initially, these multiple subtypes, a hundred different subtypes of sarcoma, so to be able to, to study that of epithelioid sarcomas or clear cell sarcomas, there's possibly only 10 a year. So you need a large number of those. In fact, recent study that we've done on epithelioid sarcomas, and we've identified there's different categories of these epithelioid sarcomas. And the numbers that we have to study are very small, but completely different genomic alterations. And um, so fascinating. So therefore the treatments are also likely to be different. So that's just one, one tumor. And um, I think a lot, of, much of this research is also driven by the community, by the research, by the patient community and whose families are affected by these rare diseases. And that's um, also, I think, is very stimulating for the researchers. They see the, the real need and the compassion and the impact that these cancers have on often young people. And, and they, the researchers also feel that they want to get involved and to bring about changes and to make a difference. Now, increasingly in the Genomics England uh, world, we're bringing in digital imaging into the data uh, uh, library. So we're all the things like the you know, MRI scans, they're coming into. How is digital pathology helping you and helping sarcoma patients with whole genome sequencing research? So under the, we've been looking at slides under the microscope but it's very difficult, almost impossible, to compare hundreds of slides just taking regular photographs. So digital imaging means that actually these are now digitized in pixels. And the NHS is um, on the move, and hopefully by probably the end of next year, the whole of the UK will be have digitalized pathology services. Some will, places will move faster than others, but in sarcoma, we've set up a network with the National Pathology um, Imaging 
collaborative where all of our um, samples that are sent for whole genome sequencing will also be digitized. So we will have a direct correlation of the digitized image with the genomic data. So all of the information that's held in a genome comes from the cells that we see down the microscope. So if we can link those two, it may be possible for pathologists to, to change their way they work in many, many ways. So you'll be able to undertake machine learning. So instead of a, the, the pathologist looking down a microscope and thinking, oh, I don't know what this is, and reporting maybe requesting 20, maybe even 30 different special tests, the computer will actually suggest to it, we think there's a 90% chance of it being this tumor, therefore do this test. And then um, it would come to the pathologist. The pathologist would still have to take responsibility for making that diagnosis. But they, so it would act as a guide. And we've done some work on this and it's proving very powerful in terms of um, it should reduce the turnaround times, it could increase the accuracy, it should reduce the amount of money being spent on special stains. It also allows that we use much less of the tissue that's taken from patients that can be then used for additional genomic analysis. So this is a win-win situation for the patients, for more research, for analyzing and getting more genomic data. So it'll help with differentiating diagnosis. It'll free up pathologists to do more research and to think more differently, to have time to study cases that come through clinical trials. It will transform um, the way that pathologists um, provide a pathology service for sarcoma. It goes back, machine learning and digital pathology requires large numbers of cases. And so this is also the benefits of bringing everybody together right across the UK to get all their images into a library and linked the, to the genomic data, which will prove very powerful. But we will need then probably to go back 20 years and scan every tumor and that's what we're intending to do in the RNOH, to scan all of our tumors over the last 25 years, to be able to use this for digital pathology. And um, Sarcoma UK has, has funded us to do all of this scanning and make this library. So we're very, um, we're very grateful for that. The RNOH being the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital, which is one of the major centres for sarcoma treatment uh, in the UK. Now, you mentioned machine learning. How important is that in sarcoma? Well, I think it is enormously um, important because going back to those hundred different subtypes, it's just you, and there's more subtypes being identified all the time. So it's very difficult if people to, to acquire the knowledge and the expertise of those different subtypes. Um, and so with the help of a machine, it won't give you the diagnosis, but it will hopefully limit the diagnosis. So we're taking all of these at the moment, all of our tumors that are benign tumors that people make mistakes over that they could be malignant. 
we know that each of those are characterized by a very specific genetic alteration. So we know we have the correct diagnosis. And we're feeding these into a machine learning model. And we're, we're finding very, very convincing data where we're told it's 95% that it's going to be this tumor. And it, in many cases, it's right. And so um, that will, um, but then you will be able to correlate it, we hope, with clinical outcome. It's not just making the diagnosis, but we will be able to fill in and link that to clinical outcome with machine learning and say, this is tumor X, but because of the shapes of the cells, the sizes of the cells, the mitotic activity, how fast it's growing, with enough cases, it's, we should be able to, that machine learning model should be able to say, this is a high risk disease and therefore high risk, then you would manage it as a high risk tumor with greater follow-up you would possibly think about clinical trials. It's, we could see even that you would say from the, from the digital image, we could train it. These are the tumors that have, a, have chromotrypsis. And these are the tumors that are very, very uh, going to be resistant to radiotherapy. We could look at tumors and train them. These are the tu tumors that are caused by radiotherapy, which we see in sarcoma. It's a very, very powerful tool. And um, with the extra demand to get tissue for analysis and um, the shortage of pathologists in the United Kingdom, but globally, the expertise, the shortage, this is a really powerful exercise to take a lot of the straightforward um, work of the pathologists so that they can really then move into the this, this century in terms of um, understanding genomics and new treatments and um, developing, improving therapy for patients, because it, it is going to happen. Which is very good news for sarcoma patients. What I'm getting a picture of is this rather mysterious cancer with its scrambling of uh, DNA. But I'm also getting the message loud and clear that in order to get the outcomes that patients need, you need to have a huge number of genomes. And for some of the rarer types, obviously, that means collaboration across Europe and indeed across the globe. But uh, also, I, I suspect that we need to get across to clinicians all around the country that, yes, you need to submit or ask your, your patients whether they would be happy to be involved in research and to donate their genome to the, uh, through the genomic medicine service. Is that right? Yes, I mean, all of this work requires a multidisciplinary team um, at every single level. And if, if that team doesn't work together, at a local level, but at a national level, we're not going to see the benefits from this huge exercise that David Cameron started with the 100,000 genomes um, back where we had the Olympics. And so um, if you don't consent the patients and ask them, can we do their genomic data? It won't be analyzed in that way. If the, if the material isn't sent directly to the pathology department, where we can freeze some of that material, then um, we can't do 
the in-depth analysis. We can do some analysis um, and it's not, sometimes we have very little tissue so we can't do all the analysis that we might want to do. If the oncologists don't think about giving the right information to the pathologist, um, and if we don't collect the clinical outcome data, there's missing pieces of the jigsaw. All information is useful, but it, then you need to have the scientists on board to be able to do the research. And you need, so at every component of this, um, this effort, we need to have a multidisciplinary team and to engage. And the doctors must ask, would you like your genome to be analyzed? And I would also encourage patients, if they're listening to this podcast, to know that they can say to their doctor, are you going to analyze my genome in my tumor? I would like it done. Where is the consent form that I need to sign? Because it needs to be done up front. It is difficult because, of course, patients, they're going in, they're very anxious about themselves or their children. And possibly the last thing on their minds is, signing a consent form for and having an extra blood sample taken. But if people are aware of this and people um, are aware of it, but also if the doctors are able to put it to the patients in advance and have a chat with them, um, it, it can happen. And we can take a blood sample later, but getting that consent and particularly that tumor sample early is absolutely critical that we have permission to study it. Um, and I think digital pathology and these advances will also give people, the pathologists, more time to set up these pathways and to, to work with their clinicians and to help this happen. So all, all of these improvements will allow patients to get a better outcome. Finally, Professor Flanagan, you've been working in the sarcoma field for decades now. Is the future, thanks to whole genome sequencing for sarcoma, looking a lot brighter than it was? Oh, I think the, <clears throat> the whole area is being, is transformed. When I started 25 years ago, we didn't have any molecular pathology. Many times we had no idea what that diagnosis was. Today, the information that we're getting every single day is new information. We're building on knowledge and on skill. We have such a committed team of scientists who want to understand sarcoma. I have no doubt that in the next decade, we're going to see huge transformation in the outcomes and the new treatments and new clinical trials for patients with sarcoma. Professor Flanagan, thank you so much. Well, that's all for this episode. Look out for the next edition in which I'll be talking to Zoe Conway about her husband, Chris Martin, who was working in Downing Street for David Cameron, who, of course, was the one who initiated the 100,000 Genomes uh, Project. Thanks so much for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. Remember to subscribe to G word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you have views on this topic or you have a suggestion for someone we should interview, then do please write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. And do remember that if you've enjoyed listening, 
please give us a five-star review because it really, really helps other people to find out about the series. I'd appreciate it very much. I've been Vivian Perry, and I'll see you on the next episode of The G Word with Zoe Conway talking about her husband, Chris Martin. Bye for now.